2007, October 23rd. Today is Lecture 23, Worlds Within, Atoms. Let's get going here. Okay, first of all, I want to apologize for my footwear today. I, I'm not making a fashion statement. I had a little um, encounter with a bus this morning, and my shoes were like sponges. So luckily, I had a pair of Tevas in the office, but <clears throat> I don't normally wear a jacket with Tevas. That seems like a very California thing to do, but that's not my style. Well, yesterday we talked about the properties of light. What is light? We saw light as photons, light as waves. We saw a couple of different properties of light. For example, the Doppler effect, which is behind Doppler radar, which is the thing if you looked at this morning was the state of Ohio was lit up with all the moving clouds dumping water on us. To next begin our, our understanding of how we look at the universe through the nature of light, we need to stop and say, well, what is the universe primarily made of? Or at least what is the part of the universe we can see primarily made of? And that will turn out to be ordinary matter. Now, there are other kinds of matter. You may have heard of things called dark matter. That's a different topic for a different day. It really doesn't impinge upon us here in the solar system. But today we want to talk about the properties of matter, or more specifically, we want to talk about the properties of atoms and things made out of atoms. And so today's lecture is given the title, Worlds Within the Atom. The key ideas today are as follows. This, I hope, is a review, sort of a basic chemistry, uh, all of chemistry in 40 minutes. Atoms are composed of two, comp two basic components. A nucleus, which consists of protons and neutrons, surrounded by a cloud of electrons, which orbit around this nucleus in various ways. The properties of the atom give rise to the existence of things called chemical elements and isotopes, ways in which we distinguish one atom from another. We're then going to use the definition of isotopes to introduce the idea of radioactivity. It's a very important idea to us, especially later, when we try to talk about age dating, rocks and things like that from the moon and meteorites and the earth. So we'll talk a little bit about radioactive decay. And then finally, I want to end with a discussion of the four fundamental forces of nature. We've already met one of them, gravitation, in some detail. There are three more forces, the electromagnetic force, the strong and weak nuclear forces. And we'll say just a little bit about these and why they are important to us. They're all part of the general set of phenomena that actually describe the physics of astronomy. Now, most of what we, are made, what we are made of is ordinary matter. And ordinary matter is found primarily throughout the universe in the form of atoms. There are lots of different, there's a huge range that ordinary matter can actually undertake. This ranges everything from fundamental particles, the ultimate smallest thing that you can divide matter into, will turn out to be a classes of particles known as quarks and leptons. We won't bother ourselves too much about the details of quarks and leptons because in everyday life, or even in astronomy, we actually don't encounter quarks very often. It's only in the very earliest, very hottest phases of the universe do we ever actually expect to, to encounter quarks as the dominant form of matter. Normally what we see is the products of quarks combining together into particles which we'll refer to as for ordinary matter can be summarized as a set of three subatomic particles of which all basic ordinary matter is composed of. Protons and neutrons found in the nucleus of atoms and electrons. There are lots of other exotic particles that make up matter as well, but we're very, again, very rarely going to encounter them even in a course like this. These subatomic particles can then combine themselves into single atoms, things of single elements like hydrogen, helium, gold, all the various elements that we actually, and chemical elements that we encounter. You can then begin to combine atoms into larger structures, compounds of atoms, which we would call molecules. Again, familiar ones are things like oxygen, 
oxygen molecule, O2. Water, the junk falling out of the sky or sluicing all over my shoes this morning, and so forth. From very simple molecules, which are composed of kind of a handful of different types of atoms bound together, we can actually build up to very, very large what are called macromolecules. And here we're talking about things like DNA, RNA, uh, very, very complex polymers that make up plastics and modern materials. These macromolecules can be very, very large and can, can be composed of a very, very large number of atoms. For example, there's a, there's a famous little factoid that people like to spray around, that if you took your DNA and unwound it from the tight coil, it would actually stretch from here to the moon. That's how many atoms are in a single long strand of DNA. Of course, there's reasons why DNA is little tiny things stuffed inside of your uh, cell, but that's a different, different story for a different class. And finally, we, after all of this range of material, we finally get up to the range of what we'll call macroscopic objects, which is a catch-all class for rocks, people, planets, anything which is basically a big lump of stuff. And these are going to be often going through a various range of forces that bind these things together. So we have everything going from the smallest subatomic particles all the way up to people and planet-sized stuff that is all made of the same basic building blocks. The subatomic particles combining into atoms, and then, of course, molecules, macromolecules, and stuff. What does atomic structure actually look like? Well, we're gonna, I'm going to use a very simple model for this. What we used to refer to this kind of dates me. is what we call the Westinghouse model of the atom. An atom consists of two fundamental components. The central components, the very center core of the atom, is called the nucleus. The nucleus is composed of heavy subatomic particles. Specifically, it's composed of the proton, which is a positively charged heavy subatomic particle, and a neutron, which is composed of uncharged or electrically neutral massive subatomic particles. And to a first approximation, both a neutron and a proton are approximately the same mass. Not exactly, but close enough for our purposes. Surrounding those nuclei, composed of protons and neutrons, are orbiting atoms, orbiting electrons. An electron is a negatively charged light particle. It's often called a lepton, which means basically a light particle. It's a, you know, this tendency in the sciences to borrow Greek and Latin words. To give you an idea of its math, its mass, it's basically 1 1836th the mass of a proton. So in terms of the mass of an atom, all the mass of the atom is really in its nucleus. The, the electrons that are buzzing around the nucleus make up a very, very tiny fraction. Basically, for an atom like hydrogen, which has one electron around it, the electron spiraling around it is only going to be about, about 1 1,800th of its mass. For an, a new atom like helium in its most common isotopic form, which has two protons and two neutrons surrounded by two electrons, it's an even tinier fraction, about 1 36th of its mass. In fact, I probably even haven't even done that particular calculation right. Now, atoms, it turns out, and this is the mysterious part, and this is the part that really drove people nuts for a long time until we figured out atomic structure at the beginning of the 20th century. Atoms are mostly empty space, and very, very much empty space. The difference in scale between the size of a nucleus and the typical size of the electron cloud surrounding an atom is one part in 100,000. So think about if you wanted to play the nucleus, the nearest thing to you would be 100,000 meters away. 100 kilometers away would be the nearest electron in a typical atom. But remember, we're dealing with a three-dimensional object. So the actual volume is 10 to the 5 cubed. Well, that's 10 to the 15. 
So one part in 10 to the 15 of apparently solid matter, only one part in 10 to the 15 actually has any stuff in it at all. So the first big question you've got to ask is, well, why is it solid? Why don't I just fall right through the floor? If the distance between, mean distance between things is about one part in 100,000 of the size of where most of the matter in the nucleus is, and one part in 10 to the 15 is volume, why does the table seem solid? Well, it's because that old factoid that most of matter is empty space is actually incorrect. It's not empty. That space between the atoms is actually threaded with energy. And it's energy in the form of electromagnetic fields. It's the electromagnetic fields, the mutual attraction and repulsion between the components of the nucleus and their surrounding clouds of atoms that actually make the material actually filled with energy of a sort. So material energy we often refer to as atomic binding energy. So in fact, my hand has only got about one part into the 10 to the 15 of its volume occupied by the actual matter in my hand. Same is true of the table. But when I try to push my hand through the table, I don't get very far. And the reason is because the electromagnetic fields threading between the atoms in my hand do not allow the atoms making up the table to interpenetrate. I have to get into special states of matter. And one of those special states of matter is known as a liquid, where I basically break up the bonds between those atoms, and I can interpenetrate to my heart's content. Or in a gas, where the atoms are completely free, and I've broken all the bonds between them, not simply loosened them, and I can be swatting huge numbers of atoms apart because they basically have no electromagnetic bonds between them strong enough to prevent the ones from my hand from essentially interpenetrating the space between. So that's really what matter is made of. It's basically solid matter occupying a very small fraction of the volume but bound together by electromagnetic fields. And those are the things that actually give matter on the macroscopic people size scale the illusion of solidity. Now those pictures of atoms, the usual Westinghouse atom is a, a little nucleus and the little electrons rolling around it kind of like fast-moving planets. But that's not really what an atom would look like. If you had a super microscope and you can get around the obvious practical difficulties of looking at something as small as the hydrogen atom, what you would see would actually look something like this. The electron is buzzing around so fast it never stops. You can never see it frozen in space. It's not the slow, graceful dance of the planets around the sun. This thing is whizzing around at huge speed. And so what we see is essentially a cloud occupied by that electron. But the electron's orbit is not a simple circle or an ellipse. It's an extremely complex pattern. In fact, what I'm showing here is not actually hydrogen as it would always appear. I'm showing hydrogen in what's known as an excited state. We'll say more about that when we talk about the nature of the internal matter tomorrow. What we're seeing here is that the electron is so small that it actually begins to act like a wave. Now, we usually think of electrons as little tiny negatively charged BBs of matter. But in fact, they work in the quantum world where things kind of look like waves. And so these waves actually kind of, well, they kind of wave on each other in the wave that makes up the proton. And the interactions among them give them some phenomenally complex orbits around the, around the atom. The interior details of atomic structure is very, very complicated on the one hand, if you wanted to look at it as pictures like this. But on the other hand, it turns out that there's things about atomic structure that is amazingly simple. And we're going to see that in more detail tomorrow, but I'll just introduce it today. 
This is where all the action is, is understanding where is the electron around that nucleus at any given time turns out to be this part of the secret to understanding how light and matter interact. But let's just talk about atoms more generically. We'll leave aside the details of internal structure, at least at that level, for a later lecture. How do we distinguish one type of atom from another? Well, it turns out that the distinction of atoms into individual elements is a very old idea. Now, if you went back to Aristotle and Anaximander and people much earlier back in time, we had something known as the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire. But in fact, it began to be recognized by pretty much the end of the um, 18th, the beginning of the 19th centuries, that matter was actually composed of chemically distinct elemental forms. In fact, the term element comes from the chemist Lavoisier in France. We nowadays distinguish atoms into their individual elements. In the old days, they do it by their chemical distinction. Now that we know what the structure of an atom really is, what makes one element different from another turns out to be simply the number of protons that make up the nucleus. That's it. This is a periodic table of the elements over here on the wall here. It's one thing that I love about being in chemistry buildings. Another one over there for those of you at that side of the room. Hydrogen is the simplest of atoms. It consists of a nucleus containing one proton surrounded by one electron. Any atom that has one proton is hydrogen or a form of hydrogen, as we'll see in a second. Helium, the second most complicated element in the periodic table, the one over here on the other upper left, right-hand corner of the diagram, contains two protons in its nucleus, plus two neutrons and other stuff. If I have three protons, I get lithium, four protons beryllium, five protons boron. In fact, for those of you who are keeping count, that little number in the upper right-hand corner of each square is, in fact, the number of protons making up that nucleus. So anything with six protons in it would be, hmm, oh, that's carbon, and so on and so forth. So what distinguishes one element from another is the number of protons in the nucleus. Now, the positive charge on a proton is exactly the same but opposite to the charge on a single electron. So if I had an atom in a neutral state, I expect the number of electrons to exactly equal the number of protons. So an electrically neutral hydrogen will have one electron to balance exactly the electrical charge from the one proton. Neutral helium will have two electrons to balance each of the two protons. Lithium will have three electrons, one for each of its three protons, and so on and so forth. So when I get up to stuff like uranium, uranium has 92 protons in its nucleus. It's a big, it's a big honking nucleus. It will have, in its neutral form, 92 electrons buzzing around in a very, very complex orbit. It's this arrangement of electrons around that nucleus, the fact that neutral hydrogen always has one, neutral helium always has two, and so on and so forth, and the exact arrangement of those electrons that gives the element its chemical properties. It tells me what elements it will react with and what elements it won't react with. All of chemistry is really basically about figuring out the structure of the atoms and how that structure interacts with other things. Now, I've just completely insulted all my chemical, chemi chemistry uh, colleagues, but that's basically what chemistry is all about. From our perspective, that's as much of chemistry as we're going to care about. So elements are the number of protons. Now, these periodic table of the elements here have a lot of stuff in it. Astronomers have a much simpler periodic table of the elements because we really are going to be dealing with the most abundant elements in the universe. 
And so, borrowing a page from Letterman, we'll look at the top 10 most abundant elements in the universe. And since I don't really want to do a countdown, they are sulfur. From the top, 10 is sulfur. Number nine is magnesium. Number eight is iron. Number seven is silicon. Number six is nitrogen. Number five is neon. Number four is carbon. Number three is oxygen. Number two is helium. And number one with the proverbial bullet is hydrogen. In fact, not surprisingly, we're going from fairly complex to the simplest things in terms of atomic structure. And actually, the astronomer's periodic table is the best one. When I was a chemistry student, both as an undergraduate, I took chemistry, which was not my best class, and when I was a high school student, they made us memorize the periodic table of the elements up through uranium. They were cruel. One of the reasons I became, well, not really one of the reasons I became an astronomer, but one of the things that's nice about becoming an astronomer is astronomers have only three elements in the periodic table, hydrogen, helium, and the metals. Because hydrogen is about 75% of the universe. Helium's 25%, less a little bit in round numbers, and the other fraction of a percent is made up of all that other junk that the chemists spend their day working on. Now, I'm being a little flippant. We actually are going to deal with more than just hydrogen, helium, and the metals. But if I look at the sun, it's essentially hydrogen, helium, and a little salting of, of heavy metals in it. That's it. So this is the range of elements. These are the most abundant things in the universe. You will notice some very familiar things here. After you get past hydrogen and helium, which is kind of the stuff of the universe, what do we see? Well, if we look in among the first four after helium is oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. Now, there's neon there, too, but neon is not chemically reactive. Why do we care? Because hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen are the four elements essential to organic life. Right? All of our bodies contain a huge amount. We are carbon-based life. We breathe oxygen, and oxygen chemistry is important, as is nitrogen chemistry. After that, what do we find? Silicon, the stuff the Earth is made out of, silicate rocks, which is basically silicon and oxygen. Iron, deep in the core of the Earth, is an iron and nickel core. Magnesium is one of the most common metals after iron. Notice everything else here is either a gas or some kind of, well, that's a, that's a solid mostly here, unless it's diamond, it's usually a black solid, and then sulfur. All of these are extremely common. It should not surprise anyone that we are based on carbon chemistry that is among the most abundant things in the universe after you get out of hydrogen helium. We're going to say a lot more about this kind of stuff as we go on to explore different parts of the solar system, which different elements dominate. It's telling us something about where it formed and what kind of chemistry dominates, for example, the atmospheres of different planets. So we'll keep in mind, we're going to see all, well, most of these at various times. We'll see this list again here in just a second. Turns out that this periodic table here goes up to 103. It's out of date. There are currently 118 distinct chemical elements known. 87 of them are metals. 11 appear as gases at normal terrestrial conditions. Two occur as liquids in their normal terrestrial conditions. Mercury is one of those. It's actually a liquid metal at normal terrestrial pressure and temperature. The other is bromine, not an element you normally encounter every day. and You wouldn't want to. It's pretty nasty stuff. 26 of these 118 elements are naturally occurring radioactive elements. For example, isotopes of uranium is one example. But there are 25 others. And 25, not surprisingly, the 25 elements that come after uranium with 92 protons, 
Everything else in here is only created. Oh, I guess I was wrong. There's the other elements in the table right there. Up to 114. You're still out of date. Those are only made in particle accelerators or nuclear reactors because their radioactive lifetimes are so short they cannot be expected to be naturally created and exist in nature for all but a few fractions of a second, with the exception of some really nasty stuff like plutonium. Now, this is the 118 basic elements, but that's not all the stuff. There's another form of matter which we can get called an isotope. Each element, from hydrogen all the way up through you know, some strange stuff up here like 114, all of those can have many different isotopic forms. And it's these isotopic forms that actually can be quite interesting to us. We'll say a little bit about that here. An isotope is a nucleus which has exactly the same number of protons in it. Remember, the number of protons is what determines, you know, six protons, I'm carbon. One proton, I'm hydrogen. I determine the different isotopic forms of that element by the number of neutrons that I pack in there along with the protons. So for example, let's pick carbon, number six, six protons, element number six over here on the periodic table. There are three basic isotopic forms of carbon. Carbon-12, the most common, has six protons and exactly six neutrons. Six plus six equals 12. Carbon-13, a slightly less abundant isotope of carbon, depending upon the local chemistry, it comes in proportions either from one to 30 or one part in 90 of normal carbon, has six protons because carbon here, the C here says, I got six protons. But it's got seven neutrons, so it's got just one more neutron than carbon, so it's six plus seven is 13. The other isotopic form that you're likely to encounter is carbon-14, which has six protons, six because it's carbon, and eight neutrons. Now, it turns out that only the first two are stable. The, 14, the second, third one, carbon-14, is radioactively unstable. Because these all have six protons, and in their neutral form have six electrons counteracting and orbiting around those protons, all of these are chemically identical. I can form, for example, carbon dioxide, CO2. Most of the CO2 you're breathing out contains carbon-12. But you've ingested some fraction, except part in 90, part in 30, depending upon where you've been, of carbon-13. And you actually exhale that as 13 carbon O2. It's a slightly heavier version of CO2. You even have ingested some carbon-14. Carbon-14 turns out to be made in cosmic ray events hitting the upper atmosphere. It's made naturally. It doesn't live very long, as we'll see. But it's carbon. It's identical to any other carbon. It forms inorganic stuff. It gets into meat. It gets into flour. You eat it, and you ingest it, and you take it up in your body. You actually have radioactive carbon-14 being constantly taken up in your body. In fact, if you breathe out carbon dioxide, a very, very small fraction of that will be radioactive carbon-14. If we had a sensitive enough, sensitive enough mass spec, we'd actually see that in your breath. The point is this. Isotopes are all chemically identical, but they have different masses. They're either heavier or lighter versions of that given atom. So let's look at some examples. Okay, and the coding I'm going to use here for my cartoon is red's a proton with a positive charge, green is a neutron. A hydrogen, the primary form of hydrogen is we often call it one hydrogen. The one here basically is the count of protons plus neutrons. So we call that ordinary hydrogen. The second isotopic form of hydrogen is called deuterium. It's called two hydrogen or deuterium from the Greek word 
two. Um, it's got a proton plus a neutron. It has to have only one proton because it's one proton says I'm hydrogen. There's a third, second isotopic, third isotopic form called tritium. Tritium because it's three particles. It has one proton because it's hydrogen plus two neutrons. Helium has two isotopic forms, two protons plus a neutron, helium three, or two protons plus two neutrons, helium four, or sometimes just plain old-fashioned helium. This is, in fact, the most dominant form of helium is helium four, and then light helium, or helium three, is the second most important form. That's it. Notice, for example, there is no helium two. There is no nucleus with just two protons. Furthermore, there's no such thing as helium five. There's no nucleus with two protons and three neutrons, or helium six or helium seven. There's a limit to what isotopes can appear. This means something. Lithium, next up, has two isotopic forms. Three, lithium is three protons, so three protons plus three neutrons gives you lithium six. Three, <laughs> yeah, three protons plus three neutrons. Three protons plus four neutrons gives you lithium seven. Three plus four. That's it. That's a simple version of this. The number of protons tells you which chemical it is. Three means lithium, two means helium, one means hydrogen. So looking across the periodic table, if I wanted to make isotopes of oxygen, I'd start out with oxygen always has eight protons, and then I might start out with oxygen 16, which is eight neutrons plus eight protons, oxygen 15, eight protons, because it's oxygen plus five, no, seven neutrons, and so on and so forth. So these are how you build up isotopes. So let's take, let's bring back that top 10 elements in the universe, but now add their isotopic identities to it. And I've rearranged the list, so now it's one through 10, so we've stopped the Letterman gig here. We got hydrogen and helium is one hydrogen, four helium. Usually we say helium four, hydrogen one, oxygen 16, carbon 12, neon 20, nitrogen 14, silicon 28, iron 56, magnesium 24, and sulfur 32. You notice a pattern here? Except for hydrogen. They're all even numbers. Furthermore, with the exception of nitrogen, they're all multiples of four. Something's going on here. We go from four to 12, but we don't have eight. Hmm. Well, that's a story for Astronomy 162. This pattern isn't accidental. It's telling us something about how these elements were assembled from their components, and their components will turn out to be hydrogen and helium. So I'll let you puzzle on that one for a second. It's not a completely random pattern of why these are the most abundant. We're starting from the lightest to the most complex, and it's revealing in this pattern the pattern by which they were assembled, by which they were assembled in the cores of massive stars by nuclear fusion. All right. What is radioactivity? Why do we keep mentioning radioactivity every now and then? Like carbon-14, I mentioned, was a radioactive isotope, or that many of the isotopes, especially the heavy ones at the, at the top of the, radioact of the elemental table here, are strongly radioactive. What do I mean by that? turns out that if a nucleus has either too many or too few neutrons, 
it becomes unstable and will actually rip itself apart spontaneously on some time scale. Depending upon whether it's incredibly unstable, at which point it comes apart almost immediately, or if it's kind of marginally stable, it'll get around to it in a billion years or so. So for example, all these elements up here that are sort of in this funny white on black block text instead of being fully bl black text, those are elements that are so unstable they come apart almost as soon as you form them. They're strongly radioactive. What do I mean by radioactivity? What do I mean by come apart or decay? Well, it turns out, for example, here's an example of a nucleus with too many neutrons, tritium. Tritium is the heavy, heaviest isotope of hydrogen. It contains one proton, because it's hydrogen, plus two neutrons. One plus two is three. Turns out that two neutrons is one neutron too many for hydrogen. What it does is it needs to get rid of that neutron. But the way it does it is instead of spitting a neutron out, what this particular isotope does is it turns one of those neutrons into a proton, spitting out an electron and a little funky particle called a neutrino. Now the electron we know, the proton and neutron we know, what's the neutrino? Well, for the purposes of this class, a neutrino is basically a very small, nearly massive neutral particle which conserves the spin of the individual particles. It's basically in there because it's going to be, have to be a byproduct. You almost always get two products from a decay. One of those products is going to contain the charge that counteracts the charge you just made. So if I go from one positive charge and two neutrals to make helium, which is now two protons, two positive charges, I've got to have one positive charge. I've got to have only one net positive charge on the other side here. Two plus plus one minus gives me a net positive charge. So if I want to turn a neutron into a proton, I've got to turn that, I've got to in, spit out an electron because a negative plus a positive gives me my neutral. And then the neutrino there is basically a little subatomic particle physics detail that makes the energy and the spin balance sheet come out right. Carbon-14, the heavy isotope of radioactive isotope of carbon, has six protons and eight neutrons. That's one too many neutrons for carbon. So one of those neutrons turns into a proton. Now that I've got seven, neutron, seven protons, I'm no longer carbon, I'm nitrogen. So 14 carbon decays into 14 nitrogen, seven protons now plus seven neutrons. That's a nice happy balance, and spits out an electron and neutrino. In fact, this version of carbon-14 is the one that's at the basis of radioactive carbon dating, of things like bones and, and charred artifacts. In fact, the fact that the neutron is turning into a proton plus an electron and neutrino should be a hint that free neutrons are turned out all by themselves. A neutron free of its nucleus is unstable and in fact will break apart spontaneously into a proton plus an electron plus a neutrino. Hey, there's all the products I need. One of the neutrons turns into a proton plus an electron plus a neutrino. I cannot have a bottle of neutrons. Because after a while, what I will have is a bottle of protons, and the electrons and neutrinos will probably go streaming out of the bottle. So neutrons themselves are unstable. They can turn from a neutron into a proton. This is really strange, matter changing from one form to another. It's doing this because there's some deep inner structure to this matter. Protons and neutrons are not the bottom of the hierarchy. They're not bricks. They're actually made of something themselves. That's what this is telling us. 
So how do we characterize radioactivity? First of all, radioactivity is a random process. If I put a bottle of, let's say I had a re nuclear reactor making a bunch of neutrons, and I pulled out a bottle of neutrons out here, and they all had labels, maybe I even I'll give some of them names. I can't tell you which of those neutrons is going to decay next. It's going to be any one of those at random. The measurement of the activity of a radioactive element is called its activity, and we quantify it in terms of something we call the half-life. You've all probably heard the term half-life before. It's basically the time required for half of the atoms in a given sample to decay. So let's say I've got a pure sample of some elemental form, of isotopic form of an element that's unstable. How long do I have to wait on average before one kilogram of unobtainium-123 becomes one half kilogram of unobtainium-123 and a half kilo of alludium? Okay. How long do I have to wait? That time is called the half-life. If I only have to wait a week, that's pretty active stuff. That's so violently active stuff, you would not want that under your bed. If it took a billion years to get rid of half of it, that's sort of the thing saying, okay, one atom's going to go, and, and we'll, we'll be back next year with another one. Okay, so that stuff is not very radioactive. If you're going to deal with radioactive substances, you don't want to worry about stuff that's got a billion-year radioactive life, half-life. You want to worry about the stuff that's going to decay in a couple seconds, because that stuff's going to be nasty. Here's some examples of half-life. Tritium turning into light helium, helium-3, via this process of turning a neutron into a proton with an electron neutrino, has a half-life of about 12 and a quarter years. So if I had a bottle of tritium, you can actually have a bottle of such stuff. In fact, tritium is used, has a number of applications. Come back 12 and a quarter years later, half of that tritium would actually be helium-3. And then the electrons and neutrinos would go streaming out of the system. Carbon-14 goes into nitrogen-14 with a half-life of about 5,700 years. So if I had a bone, for example, that had taken up natural carbon-14 all of its life, and then it died, the animal dies, it stops taking up carbon. I come back 5,700 years later, and half of the carbon-14 is gone. I know the age of that bone. Neutrons have a half-life of 12 minutes. If I went out and got me a jar of neutrons, stuck them in the middle of the room, 12 minutes into my lecture, half of them would be gone. The next 12 minutes, the other half would be half gone, so I'd have a quarter. The next 12 minutes, a half of that quarter or an eighth would be left. The next 12 minutes, a half of a quarter or an eighth would be left. Sixteenth would be left. So if I had a bottle of neutrons at the start of the lecture, this class period is 48 minutes, by the end of the next bell, I would only have one-sixteenth of the neutrons I started with because I would have gone through one, two, three, four half-lives. And I would have gone half times a half is a quarter times a half is an eighth times a half is a sixteenth. It's an exponential decay process. And that's part of what makes radioactivity so much fun and so hard to get your head around. So here's an example of how radioactivity works. Popcorn is a good example of a, of, a unstable, of a random decay process. We all like popcorn. Put it in the microwave. 16 kernels start out, you punch the button, and you start the clock. Now, you could probably come up with one of those sort of frat boy drinking games to figure out betting on which popcorn kernel is going to go next, but that's a silly thing to do. All you do is wait until half of the popcorn kernels have popped. If 35 seconds later I find half eight of these 16 kernels have popped and the other eight have not popped, 
then I would say that popcorn, this case, has a half-life of 35 seconds. That's not very active popcorn. Imagine I came back three seconds later and half the popcorn had popped. That'd be really poppy popcorn. Very, very active popcorn. Now, I've been doing these podcasts now for a couple of years. And last time I taught this class, I got an email from one of my fans out there on the internet who listens to this class without being in the class. They said, Professor, I've been hearing this thing about popcorn being an exponential decay process with a half-life. And you know, when I listen to popcorn in the microwave, it isn't. It starts out slow, goes fast, and then goes slow again. And I went, yeah, you know, it does. It's not really exponential. I said, okay, do you know of any exponential processes in nature? And the guy came back a week later and said, yeah. Beer foam. Beer foam is an exponential collapse. Here's an actual scientific paper from the European Journal of Physics in 2002 by Professor Leica from, you might guess it, a, a university in Munich, Germany, in which he basically timed the collapse of beer foam for Erdiger Weiss beer, Budweiser, that's the Budvar Czechoslovakia version, not the wimpy stuff that people make in America, and Augustiner, a nice really dark Bach beer, and this, in fact, is the radioactive, or it's not radioactive, the collapse of the foam is an exponential process. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do this experiment. You have to be somewhat careful with this particular experiment. I've done this experiment in my home with different sorts of beers, and in fact, it works. I proposed doing it in class, but I found out there's something called the Drug-Free Workplace Act, and I'm not allowed to open a beer in the classroom. I think they're afraid I'm going to convince you all to drink beer. And everyone knows that no one has more influence over the lifestyles of young people than middle-aged academics. All right, except maybe around test time. But then it always seems to be a negative influence. Now, all of these forces that we have working together, all of the things that work together to form nature, we've seen these fundamental forces at work, things that bind matter to other matter. We've already seen one of these fundamental forces of nature, the gravitational force. It binds matter to other matter through a mutually attractive force across long distances. In fact, it's what binds the planets into the solar system, binds the moon to the Earth, and so forth. The electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force are the other three forces of nature. Let's go through them one by one quickly. Now, gravity we've already seen. It binds matter to other matter over long distances. It's a long-range force. And it's also the weakest force of nature. Turns out that even though it doesn't feel like it, when you're being pulled down a slope towards a tree, gravity really is the weakest force of nature. It obeys an inverse square law. We've seen this rule before. The force of gravity is the product of the masses divided by the distance squared. This constant G is a fundamental constant of nature. It tells us the strength of binding of gravity between matter to matter. The other force we've probably all encountered is the electromagnetic force. This is the force that acts between charged particles, but it's different than gravity. It can be both attractive, positive attracting negative, or it can be repulsive, like charges repel. So two protons strongly repel each other. Two electrons strongly repel each other. That's one of the reasons why you can't have a helium nucleus made of only two protons. Those two protons have such a strong electrical repulsion, they rip the nucleus apart before it even forms. The neutron plays a role in there, mediating that, stabilizing it. It turns out that electromagnetic force is also a long-range inverse square law force. But it works over relatively short ranges compared to gravity. It binds electrons and protons into atoms, 
and it binds atoms together into molecules. It is also extremely strong. The electromagnetic force is 10 to the 39 times stronger than gravity. That's why our bodies hold together against the gravitational force of the immense Earth, is the electrical forces among our atoms are sufficient to hold our tissues together. The strong and weak nuclear forces I'm just going to bundle together, they're extremely short-range forces. They work on scales of 10 to the minus 15 meters, which is the scale of the atomic nucleus. The strong force binds the quarks inside protons and neutrons and binds the protons and neutrons together into the nuclei. This is the strongest force of nature. The weak force is the one that's responsible for that presto changeo of the neutron turning into a proton plus electron and neutrino. It's the second weakest force of nature and it's responsible for radioactivity. If I was to crack open a proton and neutron, why they can decay is in fact a proton and neutron consist of three quarks, protons two up and a down quark, a neutron is, two, is an up and two down quarks, and the interactions between these via the weak force is what actually causes the neutron to turn into a proton. What we're going to find is that all of, na all of astronomy becomes this interplay of forces. We care mostly about gravity and electromagnetic in this course, the nuclear forces become important when we start talking about extremely high energy processes in the cores of stars and in the earliest instances of the birth of the universe. And what we're going to see now over the next couple of lectures is how I now take the property of matter and bind it to light. We'll see that tomorrow. <laughs>